Welcome to Stoop Zen. Stoop Zen is a series of Dharma talks by Anthony Osler, Dai Chong Osho, the guiding teacher at Poplar Grove Zendo in South Africa, and a former Zen monk. The talks draw from traditional Zen teachings and koans to make them relevant wherever we live and whatever life we lead. If you feel inspired by these teachings and would like to make an offering to support Stupzen, you can go to our website, stupzen.co.za, to find out how. Somebody sent me a, a lovely quote uh, from the koan collection of the, the Blue Cliff Record, which goes uh, like this. This very moment, take all complications and cut them off. Bring out your family treasures and respond everywhere, high and low, before and after, without missing a thing. It's such a great uh, summary of uh, traditional Zen practice. But of course, what we all find is that however wonderful it sounds, there are times when we just can't do it. And how we respond to those times when we just can't do it is, um, in a sense, how we define our practice. So I'd like to look at that today. I'd like to look in particular at the way in which our self, meaning the sort of self, the self-concerned self, uh, limits our practice, uh, hijacks our practice. What we can do about that, and also the fact that in a very fundamental way it actually doesn't matter at all. So th there are some I don't want to be exhaustive about the ways that uh, we hijack our own uh, best intentions, but to just uh, strike me because that's where my life has been uh, this last month. One is the way we limit the path itself and create a path uh, in the image of ourself. And it has two aspects. One is that we have an idea of the path, which of course is by definition limiting because it's an idea that's, that comes from the self. And of course, we judge ourselves in relation to that. So, for instance, we, we, we uh, think that we should be peaceful and calm. 
or as the quote said, uh, we should be able to respond everywhere without missing a thing. We think that's what should be happening. We find out that it can't. We judge ourselves in relation to that goal. And we know that we are failing. And when we fail, we start uh, judging ourselves or judging the practice, or judging the teacher, or judging the government, or the road gang. And we get a little bit frustrated and unhappy. And sometimes very unfrustrated, frustrated and very unhappy. So there's a whole cycle there that that involves our ideas of ourself and our ideas of what the path should be. And we get terribly complicated around that. And in particular, it is a kind of hazard of a tradition like Buddhism, like most forms of Buddhism, perhaps even Zen in particular, where there's a sense of kind of rah-rah spiritual heroism that is required of us. And we find we're not the, the spiritual athletes that we thought we might be. Another way that we limit, well, this is to do with our sense of ourselves in particular, is that we have an idea that I'm a certain kind of person. Uh, people say, I'm too old to start practice, for instance. Or I'm on uh, an autism spectrum, I can't come to practice. I've suffered trauma, I'm on depression, medication. And, and many of you who are here today will, will, will know that. Um, people don't come to Zen practice because they're, they're healthy and young, as it were. Or not only. <laughs> so some people practice with us with severe life conditions and they limit themselves by saying if I'm this kind of person I can't practice Zen I can't follow a spiritual path I'm somehow disabled from it and that kind of uh, thinking, uh, which of course we justify in all kinds of ways, is a wonderful example of how we, we kind of undermine ourselves. Sasaki Roshi, uh, where, where I studied to, to be a monk, um, or studied as a monk, uh, used to give us a koan, how does a drunk man find Buddha nature? 
So the question wasn't, if you're drunk, you can't be a Zen student. The question is, when you're drunk, how can you practice Zen? When you're traumatized or depressed, how do you practice Zen? And we can only answer that by kind of undoing the sense of self-definition we've built up and the sense of what the path is. So if we have the sense of the path as being a kind of an athletic uh, fast track to enlightenment uh, that requires certain kinds of personalities and certain kinds of conditions, then of course we may easily feel that we're excluded from that. And, and I'd, I was going to say I'd like to suggest, I'd do more than suggest, I plead with myself and everybody to see this tradition as something much more creative and, and unlimited than that. So that our question is always to ourselves, me in my life as I am, this reality of me, how do I live my life? Not, I am this kind of person, therefore I cannot do that. It's rather whatever life we have, whatever condition or situation we find ourselves in, how do I find the aliveness there, right there, as I am, where I am, And then the, then the questions we ask of ourselves or the things we say to each, to ourselves about this life tend to change and open out. Not that we find answers, but that we somehow um, are not looking for them in the same place. Um, I, I have to tell some uh, personal anecdotes that somehow <laughs> uh, are connected with exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I was uh, recently in hospital undergoing an operation, and um, it, it, was, it turned out to be more complicated than we'd hoped. And I was in the post-surgical ward with people sort of putting tubes in everywhere and so on. Um, and in this ward, uh, there were, I think, three or four other men. Uh, at that stage, they were all white men. And uh, an elderly farmer came in with his wife uh, to look after him and started complaining about everything very loudly. Uh, in particular about the fact that it, the hospital was run by black people and there weren't proper sisters anymore and no one knew what they were doing and it was just went on and on. Uh, in the mid middle of all this, 
a nurse came to take my blood pressure and it again had shot up uh, rather scarily. And I decided that the reason for the high blood pressure was the fact that I was so upset by all this sort of overt racist commenting that was going on the whole time. <laughs> so I, I told the nurse in, 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 in also a very loud voice that I, I, this was why I was upset and that's why my blood pressure was going, that's why I might die and please can they take me out and they sort of carried me out <laughs> of the ward uh, and and uh, me saying, I'll be fine in a moment. Uh, and they put me in a, in, a, in a chair in the corridor and, and, and left me there. And I was terribly upset. Uh, I was quite beside myself, as they say. Not really a correct phrase, is it? Anyway, I was, I was all self and 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 what struck me then was that I, I was really angry at myself for not having realized quicker what was happening to me and stood up for what I felt was right in that moment that I hadn't uh, hadn't manifested any clarity, any awakeness, or any fearlessness. Um, instead, this fog had suddenly, uh, fog had just kind of covered me from head to foot, and, uh, and I, I didn't even see it happening. I just reacted when they came to take my blood pressure. And I was sort of sitting there in this hospital corridor on a white plastic chair, sniffling away. And bemoaning the fact that after all these decades of sin practice, I hadn't, hadn't managed anything. And it was only then that I, I realized that I'd narrowed this path down in a way that meant that if I wasn't succeeding in some pre-imagined way on the spiritual path, that I'd failed it. And that somehow that the only way out was to to broaden my sense of what this path was about so that whether I was failing or succeeding according to some idea I had was actually irrelevant. That this path contained my entire life. What I see is my successes, what I see is my failures, my difficulties, my complicatedness that there's nothing outside of this path. And that, uh, that the mercy is everywhere. 
it it was it was a, a, an interesting uh, and, and beautiful experience and horrible experience. And of course, what was interesting is that the hospital staff, the word got round very quickly that I'd made a fuss about this issue. And they all came and brought me water and they brought me this and they brought me that. <laughs> and I said that, that uh, uh, if I said I was aching a bit, they gave me pain medication. If I said I was... I was, uh, my blood pressure still felt a little high. They would give me the, I had some tubes everywhere and I was starting to feel really great. I was um, full of, full of gratitude and affection for the staff who now sort of were holding me on their shoulders. <laughs> uh, bizarre. Anyway, so I lay there in the corner eventually. I was taken back and, and with all my drips and poles lying there in the corner of this of this little ward and and these men started uh, striking up a conversation including the sort of elderly farmer who, who had been complaining so much earlier um, the lights were off and they're just sort of the dimness of a hospital ward and and a sort of few white men uh, finding their own kind of camaraderie and uh, I, I remember it particularly because the one was a, a cattle farmer and the one managed an abattoir and the other managed a, a feedlot for animals for the abattoir so they were discussing meat prices and a very particular version of Protestant Christianity and it was really fascinating uh, both the meat prices and what they thought about everything and how it linked with uh, their church. And by this stage I was listening from a state of deep uh, affection for everybody. So I didn't really... Uh, I wasn't very discerning. It felt very nice. I was quite grateful. And... Uh, what I do remember from the conversation was that the three of them decided that the only time that God had ruled South Africa was during the days of the Fortrekkers, when boys obeyed their mothers, the mothers obeyed the fathers, and the fathers obeyed God. And they summed up life, and I thought it was a remarkably concise manner, um, whatever it meant. And I could uh, go off to sleep. In the middle of the night, I woke up and there was a strange noise from the corner of the room where the elderly farmer uh, was lying. A repetitive uh, voice from underneath a blanket. And I realized that it was the old farmer, I'm talking of late 80s now, just repeating the word Jesus over and over again. 
and I didn't catch most of it, but he was just chanting the name of Jesus. And I heard him thank Jesus for granting him another day's life. And asking Jesus to help him be a better person tomorrow. And then it was just the old man's chanting the lights, the sound of medical pumps and people walking outside in the corridor, the voices of nurses. And the whole world was just one. One place of, of uh, affection and mercy. And it just reinforced the sense in me so deeply that this path if we are to do it, honour includes us in all our vulnerabilities and absurdities and obstructivenesses. And it includes everybody else in all their apparent foibles and shortcomings. It's only if we can remember that, that compassion can arise. And we know that there will be times when we forget this, and that all we can do is to Take up our cushion when the gong rings and just keep keep walking the path without any sense of sometimes of where we are going or who we are. but just a sense that we keep going without any sense of expectation or reward. And that whether we forget it or not, whether we remember it or not, whether we have good experiences or not, <clears throat> 
whatever person we are, walking the path is always available to us. We don't know where it goes. We just have a sense of being part of this selfless unfolding of things. Thank you so much for, for listening and for being together with us.